At the end of the day, as ranchers, we are beef producers. I think we constantly have to be thinking about the product we're producing and not just till the day it leaves our place. Dr. Ken Odie from K-State is my guest as we review the carcass trait trends from 17 years of data through the Tri-County Carcass Futurity. How does this information line up to your breeding program? You'll find out on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and thank you for joining us here again today, right here on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM. You'll find us each Saturday right here at noon Eastern. Also, if you're of the podcast listening type, well, about every podcast provider out there, you'll find us. If you just search under Working Ranch Radio Show, you'll find us, and you can listen to us through your podcast version as well. Speaking of that, and I'm going to mention it later in our program as well uh, as a reminder about our podcast, but uh, today's show might be one of those you're going to want to be able to go back and listen to again. I'm excited to have Dr. Ken Odie from Kansas State University on our program in our next segment as we talk about a very extensive study that they have been able to put together through the results of the Tri-County Steer Carcass Futurity Cooperative out of Iowa. And this is this fraternity has been going on, started in 2002 through 2018, the results that they put together in this. And Dr. Odie has a lot of information to share with us as they really uh, kind of dialed down into what are we seeing for carcass trait trends in our industry? And I think it'll be interesting to listen to the information from that. So that is our program today with Dr. Ken Odie out of K-State. And like I said, if uh, if you do the podcast thing, this might be one of those you're going to want to go back and listen to again. Also joining us on our program today is the Captain Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine. He will join us here in just a moment for Tim's Two Cents. And in our final segment, meteorologist Don Day will be joining us, and we're going to be talking long-term weather, as we always do with Don. But specifically, kind of, boy, we've seen some backwards weather with the Pacific Northwest extremely hot and the south a little cooler than average uh what's that look like as we go forward and also i'm gonna see if i can get him to give us a real idea of what the fall and the winter is going to look like so that'll be in our final segment today as meteorologist don day joins us with a look at our long-term weather forecast well i trust everyone had a successful and happy fourth of july celebration i know uh in our part of the country we had again some very hot weather Uh, But it's been kind of intermittent because we get some hot days and then we get some cool days. And actually, fingers crossed, and not to rub it into some other folks, but we've had a little bit of rain. Now, we are a long ways from solving any drought issues out there, but we have seen a little bit of rain. But anyways, again, I hope everyone had a great 4th of July weekend. Well, a thank you to our sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association, from maternal traits to terminal traits. The genetic merit of Simmental Genetics has provided increased profitability to the rancher. Sim Genetics, profit through science. Find out more at Simmental.org. Performance Beef, easy to use cattle management software. Find Performance Beef online to request a demo. Galvey Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice for more information go to galvay.org and the working ranch expo that's going to be held december 8th 9th and 10th in las vegas to find out more go to workingranchexpo.com and finally beefmaster nothing beats a beefmaster find out more at beefmasters.org well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the Working Ranch Expo is coming up in December. The captain, Tim O'Byrne, stops by with today's two cents with a call to action for this first ever Working Ranch Expo. Take a listen. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Justin, we are really excited to be hosting our very first Working Ranch Expo here in Las Vegas, Nevada, this December 8th to 10th, coinciding with the uh, final week of NFR. We're right there at the convention center folks you'll remember the old north hall where we used to have it with in the great big hall well that's where we are 
and uh, Cowboy Christmas is going to be in the South Hall. Consider this a call for speakers for our seminars. We're going to have 16 different topics. I want to hear from you. Email me, tim at workingranchmag.com. If you have a knockout seminar for us or you know somebody that does, uh, there's lots to talk about. And we're looking really forward to hearing from you, Tim at WorkingRanchMag.com. Back to you in the booth, Justin. All right. Well, thanks, Captain. And yes, absolutely. We are interested in hearing from you on ideas for speakers at this first ever Working Ranch Expo that will be in December. As the captain said, you can shoot him an email. Or also, if you've heard someone here on the Working Ranch radio show that you would think would be a good speaker, you can email me as well. My email is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Well, stay with us. Dr. Ken Odie joins me when we return on the Working Ranch radio show. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM. I'm your host, Justin Mills. Glad to have you again with us on our program today. And as you heard in our opening of our show today as ranchers, it is becoming more and more important to understand our product beyond the shoot ramps of our corrals. And I say that knowing full well that in any operation, we also have to run cattle that are functional to our respective environments, yet at the same time trying to maximize potential profits. So today, we're going to be reviewing the results of a 17-year study on carcass traits and trends in the cattle industry through the Tri-County Steer Carcass Futurity. And I, I think it's going to provide you with information that's going to do a couple things. Number one, it might reinforce what you're already doing, or it may provide you with some information that can aid as you're just as you put your thoughts and your uh, things go through your mind and those things come then out in future management decisions as you try to uh, increase your profitability on your operation. So with that, I want to introduce my guest, Dr. Ken Odie, who has spent his career serving in the animal industry, including serving as head of K-State's Department of Animal Sciences and Industry back in 2007 and 2018. Now, prior to that, he was a graduate from South Dakota State University, then went on to serve as an officer and platoon leader in the U.S. Army, later on completing his veterinary and doctoral degrees at Kansas State University. Now, Dr. Odie also spent 11 years in research teaching at Colorado State University, also for a couple years was at North Dakota State University. Currently, he is with Kansas State in a faculty role with a research and teaching appointment. Dr. Odie and his wife, Arlene, maintain active roles in management of their South Dakota ranch. And so with that, Dr. Odie, thanks for joining me here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. My pleasure. Happy to join you. When we get into what we're going to be talking about today as as we look at the study that you guys have done uh, with carcass valuation, there's a lot of data to extrapolate out of that. But I think it's important that we start from maybe higher up and look at what we have seen in the industry in terms of carcass trait trends. And that's something that over this 17-year period study that you guys did, you really come away from that with some very good data. Certainly, I, I think that's correct. Uh, you know what's happened in in uh, in carcass traits in this industry over the last uh, 20 years or so. We actually have seen quite a bit of change, and much of it I would describe as favorable change. Probably uh, most importantly, uh, we've seen uh, uh, quality grades uh, improve and actually improve fairly dramatically uh, over the last. I can remember when a pen of cattle when you got uh, 55% choice, you actually had a pretty good pen of cattle. And now, of course, our expectations for quality grade on cattle are much above that. And I would argue there's really two reasons that these quality grades have really improved in general. One is 
we've had breeds of cattle that have uh, put a selection emphasis on marbling, and therefore marbling scores genetically have increased. But the other thing that contributes is we're actually feeding cattle to a heavier weight. So whether we measure that uh, via live weight or whether we measure it uh, via carcass weight, we're actually feeding cattle to uh, heavier weights. Uh, you know, years ago, we used to kill 1,000, 1,100-pound steers. Then we went to 12, 1,300-pound steers. We do a focus on feedlots uh, at Kansas State University, and I just looked at the last number on steers, and I think it was about 1,428 pounds was the average. So we've taken both live weights and carcass weights up quite a bit, uh, and that's been beneficial to uh, marbling scores and quality grade. Mm-hmm. So when we look at this particular study that you've done, and, and I want before we get into pulling some of the data out of that, it's called the Tri-County Steer Carcass Fatirity, and I want you to explain first of all, what that was and what it encompassed over the period of time. Sure, I'd be happy to. So at Iowa State University, uh, Extension, and really led by Daryl Busby, who at the time was a a Southwest Area Extension Specialist working for Iowa State, uh, working with a number of cattle feeders in Iowa, Southwest Iowa, and then also producers who, who were really interested in getting feedlot performance and carcass data back on their calves. So they put this program together, uh, and the first year that the data was uh, collected for was 2002. And uh, the uh, so from 2000, the data that we're talking about is from 2002 through 2018. There's a little over 110,000 records uh, in that data set, uh, so it averages... Uh, over 6,000 uh, per year during that point in time. And and wh- what we actually have on those cattle are individual animal, feedlot performance, and carcass data. So it's a really valuable data set in that it allows us to really study, uh, study a number of issues in terms of uh, cattle performance. But uh, for the purposes of this conversation, we're really focused on the uh, the carcass trade information. We think there's a lot of things that uh, we're learning from our analysis of the carcass trade data. Mm-hmm. When they started this study, was there any was there any preconceived ideas that they were trying to get to, or or think they were going to unveil in this, or what was really behind this? Yeah, I think the general thinking was that, uh, and and is that if I feed, if I'm a cow calf producer and I feed my calves or feed some of my calves in a commercial feedlot and I get feedlot performance and carcass information that I can use that information to make uh, decisions on my uh, farmer ranch. Probably most of those decisions would be genetic decisions. So uh, am I using the right bulls? Do I have an AI program? If I'm using an AI program, am I using the right bulls? Am I balancing the carcass traits with, let's say, maternal traits, other traits that are really important in my uh, in my business? And then, uh, you know, the feedlots, we're getting to both feed the cattle but also participate in a system where everybody's learning. And I think one of the huge values of these kinds of uh, systems, uh, like the Tri-County Steer Carcass Futurity Cooperative, and I, I give them a lot of credit. This is This is very... Uh, thinking ahead, uh, and so people learn a lot. They become better at uh, picking their genetics, picking the right cattle. And it isn't just genetics, too, because they also put some emphasis on health, so pre-weaning vaccination programs, preconditioning programs, to try to make sure that the calves that are coming to the feedlot have as low a risk as possible of, of uh, disease and particularly respiratory disease. So I think this is, is quite innovative, and we're just really pleased to have the opportunity uh, that they have shared the data with us so we can really do uh, what I would call appropriate statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll jump into the data and sort through the information that they uncovered in this 17-year study on carcass traits through the Tri-County Steer Futurity. You're listening to the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
For commercial cow-calf producers, crossbreeding with Galvay and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galvay and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf wean per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Gelvy and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to gelvate.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and today we're talking about carcass trait trends in the cattle industry. Dr. Ken Odie from K-State is my guest, and Dr. Odie, in the previous segment, you explained that the data we're going to now get into is the result of a 17-year carcass fertility. I believe the years were from 2002 to 2018. But before I have you walk us through that data, I do want to remind everyone that if you miss something on the Working Ranch Radio Show, you want to go back and you want to listen to it again, you can find this show on nearly every podcast provider out there. And I'm just kind of throwing that out there ahead of this because we're going to be getting into a lot of information here that uh, Dr. Odie is going to be sharing with us. And and I know uh, when you hear it once, you can have the opportunity to maybe hear it again. Some of that information will resonate a little bit more. So again, the Working Ranch Radio Show on every podcast provider out there when you want to go back and listen to it. But anyway, Dr. Odie, let's now get more into the statistical analysis. And you've already talked a little bit about things like that you've measured like back fat and marbling, yield grades and ribeye areas. So let's get into some of the statistical areas that you analyze from the results of this 17 year project. Sure. So let me start out with fat thickness, because fat thickness is really important. Uh, is, is, is there's there's really an optimum level of fat thickness for uh, slaughter cattle. Uh, and it, as I mentioned earlier, in general, we're, we're feeding cattle fatter than what we used to do. In these data, the average fat thickness in year one was 43 hundredths of an inch. And by year 2017, it was uh, 55 hundredths of an inch. So it went up 12 hundredths of an inch. That may not seem like much, but it's actually quite a bit. Uh, and, and that happened for a couple of reasons. One is the there was incentive in there for cattle to be fed a little fatter, get more, uh, get a little higher quality grades, some incentive there. Uh, but also the negative side is as cattle get fatter, then yield grade actually goes the other direction. It, it gets poor. And we actually see that in the yield grade information as well. Before I leave the fat thickness, we also separated this by steers and heifers. And of course, heifers are generally just a little fatter than steers, so their their yield grades are not uh, quite as good. Uh, the heifers, the low heifer year was 0.46, and we went up to a 0.59, so they're just a little uh, that would be inches, a little bit fatter than what the steers actually were. So, so that's what we actually saw for fat thickness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that. That relates positively to marbling. So marbling actually went up during this uh, time period as well. And steers went from uh, 422 to uh, 456, and it also went up in heifers. So that's a positive. But as I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the broader changes, uh, this marbling is going up really for two reasons. One is is uh, we're feeding cattle a little fatter, but also genetically. We're, we're, we're having a lot of emphasis on, on higher quality cattle selection for marbling. And so from the genetic side, we're actually adding quite a bit of marbling as well. Uh, the next one that really kind of follows is the yield grades. And keep in mind that yield grade now is, is the, it's really the measure of cutability. So if you really want to think about yield grades, think about uh, the probably the best indicator we have for uh, for how much uh, what what percentage of the carca- carcass is actually lean muscle, and so it's affected by fat thickness. It's affected by ribeye area. It's affected by carcass weight, and the the calculated yield grades actually went up, not a lot, but they did go up, and that would actually be a negative. That's just because we are feeding cattle a little fatter, okay? We're feeding cattle a little fatter. 
uh, and the yield rates are actually going up. It's might maybe also a function of at this time our industry is changing, uh, probably due to the dominance of the Angus breed. The Angus breed is a very good marbling breed, uh, but we're seeing uh, a little additional fat, and therefore uh, that's probably contributing to the yield grades being just a bit poor. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, kind of where we where the rubber meets the road, it really gets down to carcass values. And and what I would actually tell you, of course, carcass value is a little tricky because we have price in there. And of course, as anyone who's been in the cattle business knows. We have a lot of year-to-year variation in price. But in general, carcass value has also been going up because uh, marbling scores have been going up, and that influences uh, carcass value. But probably even bigger is the increase in carcass weight. As carcass weights get higher, uh, then carcass value goes up as well. So that's kind of a general description of the trends that we Mm -hmm. were actually seeing Uh, just the general trends in the Tri-County data. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to look at the data pulled out regarding the differences seen in the results between English breeds and continental breeds of cattle. We'll take a look at those when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM. Do you know your break-even for every group of cattle on feed? Performance beef users have quick access to real-time, accurate data. The technology simplifies feeding to financial data, making it easy to generate real-time closeouts, update rations, or analyze performance trends all in one place. Your feed, financial, and health information are integrated in one easy-to-use platform accessible from your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Find Performance Beef online to learn more and request a demo. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and my guest today is Dr. Ken Odie, who is with Kansas State University, currently in a faculty role with a research and teaching appointment there. But prior to that, uh, the 2007 and 2018, Dr. Odie served as the head of K-State's Department of Animal Science and Industry. And we've been looking today at the results of the 17-year Tri-County Carcass Futurity Cooperative and the trends seen in that study of the carcass traits, specifically studying carcass traits. And in the previous segment, Dr. Odie went through the different areas that they measured through this 17-year period. Now, Dr. Odie, some other information gathered that's quite interesting to look through was specifically looking at the delta in English breeds and continental breeds. Yeah, absolutely. The next analysis that we did is we started to look at what we call sire breed effects. So let me kind of explain what a sire breed effect actually is. So in in the data, you know, the, the ranchers, farmers that are providing cattle, uh, they would have different breeds of cattle, uh, but we, we know the sire breed uh, very specifically on a, a, a big portion of the data set. So what that allows us to do is do a statistical analysis then that really looks at what we call sire breed effects or it's the differences in the sire breeds. And uh, we're particularly interested in evaluating kind of the differences between what we'd call the continental breeds, the continental breeds, Charlay, Senatol, those kinds of breeds, which are typically uh, quite good in growth and muscling. And then the British breeds, which tend to be uh, uh, better in traits like marbling and maybe in some of the other uh, uh, other traits as well. So we were interested in, in using these data to try to really study uh, and see what kind of differences we could actually find. And um, what we did is we broke this down into um, these uh, breed groups. So we have what we call an English sired group. English would be Angus, uh, Angus and Hereford uh, primarily. And that's big. Of course, as you would expect, the, the, the dominant breed out there is Angus. So we have over 45,000 lots in that grouping. Then we have a continental sired group, and we were actually doing an analysis for the American Semitol Association. So we pulled out Sim Angus, and we pulled out Semitol sired into separate groups. 
So those are the four groups that we're actually comparing in this analysis. And the first trait we looked at was marbling. So for marbling, uh, Simitol was the base. Sim Angus was 25 units better. English Sired, which would be heavily dominated by Angus, was 35 units higher. And then Continental Sired was actually a little bit lower. So this is actually what we would expect. We would actually expect the, the, uh, the uh, Angus Sired uh, calves, which are make up a big part of what we call English Sired here, to be actually the best marbling group. And they were about uh, 35 units higher than what the base was in this case. If we look at, if we now if we take this and we go to the next level and, and start looking at fat thickness, now we see things uh, reverse a bit. So the leanest cattle now are the continental sired and the scimitol sired. They're the leanest cattle. The English sired would be the fattest. So there's about a tenth of an inch difference uh, in those groups. So So what we're seeing there is you know, the advantage of continental cattle for leanness and hence for yield grade, and then the advantage for English sired, particularly Angus, uh, for marbling, but we're bringing more fat uh, into the equation with those, uh, with those particular uh, genetics, with those particular groups. And then if you go to carcass weights, Okay, and carcass weight is, is really important because at the end of the day, that's the biggest factor affecting the total, the total size of the check that someone selling fed cattle is actually going to get. So on carcass weights, the English sard cattle are the lightest. They had about a 720-pound carcass weight. Then the Sim Angus and Simital, they have the heaviest carcass weight, seven. 42 and 738. So they're about 17 pounds heavier in carcass weight than the English sired group. So there's more carcass weight there to sell if you look at uh, the comparison there. Then if we go to uh, kind of where we put the combination of those together, we put the combination of uh, fat thickness, uh, ribeye area, and carcass weight together, we, we get the yield grade, the calculated yield grade. And in this case, the calculated yield grade is about, uh, for English sired is 3.08. And we go down to the continental groups like Simital, Continental sired, and Sim Angus. They're significantly better than the English sired group. So uh, about a half a score better. So if we go from English sired at 3.08 to Simital sired at 2.62. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a trade-off then what we're seeing here from these results with higher marbling in those English breeds to a little better uh, yield grade in the Continentals. So here's here's where we have the trade-offs between breeds. The Continental sired, and in this case Simital, uh, is bringing more muscle to the table. They're, they're, they're bringing us more muscle, uh, more carcass weight, uh, leaner cattle, uh, but they don't marble quite as well. So we're, we're giving up a little bit of marbling in that particular case. The English sard cattle, which are really led by uh, Angus in this case, are bringing uh, more marbling, but also less muscle uh, and less fat. That's what our data uh, would, actually, uh, would actually show. Mm -hmm. And then we put that all together in something uh, we call carcass value. So carcass value, and by the way, this is, this is actually what these producers were paid uh, for these cattle when these cattle were actually sold. So, um, and the carcass value is highest for the Simital sired group. Uh, it was, the average was $1,334. It was actually lowest for the English sired group, $1,299. So what we're saying in, in these data is the, the added value that Simital brought for because of carcass weight, because of less fat uh, and more muscle, uh, resulted in a uh, $35 advantage in carcass value compared to the English sired group. 
even though the English sired group did have better marbling, had higher marbling scores, would have had higher quality grades, uh, it was not enough to offset uh, what the Simitol brought in terms of uh, muscling, in terms of leanness, and in terms of carcass weight. So that's kind of the summation mm-hmm. of what we were able to learn uh, in that particular analysis. Mm-hmm. When we talk about trends here more recently, one of the things we'd have to also enter into this factor, and I don't know, was it put into this study at all, is is the value-added programs or program-type cattle. Was there any element of that in this program? Well, to just to back up, there's really not uh, something for us to analyze, but they they have a recommended set of, uh, I'll call it pre-weaning management kinds of programs, and so the cattle come in, probably better than average in terms of being prepared for going on feed. I will tell you this, in another in another area of work that I also do, my team does, we do a lot of analysis of video auction uh, and specifically superior livestock. And, you know, we've seen a lot of growth in value-added programs and more recently, you know, for years it was calf health programs, uh, VAC 34, VAC 45, mm-hmm. Now we're seeing additional growth in NHTC. Uh, we're seeing additional growth in these GAP programs that are really uh, really designed for uh, cattle that are going to end up in Whole Foods. So, yeah, I think we are. And so I think the ranchers really trying to pay attention to what's out there and what kinds of programs are out there, uh, what evidence there is for premiums associated with that program, those programs that I can tell you that they don't all have premiums. Uh, Yeah, that that world has changed a lot, too. When we first started doing the superior data analysis in 1995, we had about 12 what we call attributes on calves, the way feeder cattle are described. That's now about 26, so there's a lot of Mm -hmm. different things that producers can choose from if they're selling. And uh, it's it's much more complex, but of course there are some of those that really have really do have true added value associated with them. Mm-hmm. One of the things as we look at this, and this is we're, we're looking at the terminal traits of of these of these breed groups that we've that you've been able to pull out of this deal. Yep. And I believe there's 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 a little bit of a quandary in our in our industry a bit that a, a rancher is faced with in terms of how do they find that balance in their breeding operation between a terminal and a maternal uh, if if yep. they're keeping replacements and so coming out of this what could you I mean what what would be some advice you would offer in regards to that well let me say this we have uh, we're, we're a bit there if you if you look at what happened in pork and poultry and you look at uh, maybe using the pork industry, we we really do a a pretty good job of using heterosis, where we have maternal lines and we really do have paternal lines of pigs to create additional efficiencies. We don't use heterosis that well in the beef industry, and there's probably reasons for that. Uh, one is that uh, a lot of people, and we're like this, we like to raise our own replacement females. But if you just look at terminal cross programs, I, I do think our industry needs more terminal cross kinds of programs. Uh, you know, if you really choose the terminal bulls, uh, you can do a better job in creating cattle that that uh, that that have the feedlot performance and and carcass traits uh, in, in a little bit better position than what you would see if you try to balance creating maternal. And creating a maternal, a good maternal herd, while simultaneously trying to, I'll call it, maximize revenue associated with the sale of the, uh, you know, the product that you're producing, which is the calves that are not going back into your cow herd. So, I think it is a little tricky, but I'm a huge fan of heterosis. I think heterosis is a big deal, and trying to figure out how to optimize it within a cow herd. I think should be a priority for everyone. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, what do all of these results have to do with the future of the beef industry? Well, that's next when we return with Dr. Odie here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. How would you like an easier way to organize and manage your ranch records? 
It's easy with CattleMax, the software for people who raise cattle. CattleMax brings all your ranch records together in one place. Manage your cattle data, including health treatments, breeding, and calving. Ranch records, such as equipment inventory and maintenance, income, and expenses. It works for any size herd. See how easy it is to manage your ranch records. Start free now at CattleMax.com. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM. I'm your host, Justin Mills. My guest today is Dr. Ken Odie with K-State, and we've already now went through the data that was pulled from the 17-year Tri-County Carcass Futurity Cooperative. And Dr. Odie, you talked about the trends that you've seen since it began in 2002. So from that, what do you believe that's going to tell us that we may see in the future on carcass traits in our industry? So here's here's my thoughts on that. If you If we continue to increase carcass weights, uh, and we have for quite some time now, but if we continue to do that, what, what, the, what the industry then is needing is cattle that will be fed to those heavier weights that don't get too fat, okay? That's the trick in this whole thing, and that's mostly genetics. It's, it's some of our management tools and management techniques as well. For example, implant programs, how cattle are implanted in the feedlot can affect how fat they actually uh, are at, at slaughter time. So that's one of the variables. But I think, I think as producers look forward and looking at uh, cattle that really can add muscle, put on muscle, grow efficiently in the feed yard, and feed to heavier weights uh, without getting too fat. I think that's going to be uh, at a premium as we look further down the road. I think we're already seeing that uh, to some degree in the industry, but my suspicion is uh, we're going to see it more. I don't see us, uh, you know, we've talked for a long time about uh, the problem with big carcasses, which is uh, portion size. But what I see is the incentives that packers and feeders have for bigger carcass weights seem to sit there and we don't seem to be going uh, another direction. We, we might have thought that high corn prices mm-hmm. would uh, reduce carcass weights because you might think that the uh, cost of gain has gotten, of course, very high associated with high corn prices. But I don't think we see any evidence yet that high corn prices are doing much to, to lower carcass weights. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's yet to come because uh, because as as everyone knows we're we're dealing with uh, really high corn prices and of course in my location in South Dakota if one's raising corn that's a real positive if one's uh, feeding cattle it's a real negative so. Mm-hmm. Dr. Odie, I know you're a cow calf producer yourself with your ranch there in South Dakota. So what would be your advice to cow calf producers one to another? of what you saw coming out of this carcass program, looking at these traits and the trends that have happened over the last several years, what would you tell a cow-calf producer? Yep. So so here's a few thoughts that I would have. Number one, I think as a cow-calf producer, and most cow-calf producers are going to sell their calves at weaning or soon thereafter. And, uh, you know, there's always a lot of people promoting retained ownership, but you know, that really, feeding cattle is really a separate business than 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 building a cow-calf business. So, you know, people can retain ownership, but it's, it's certainly not any kind of, there's lots and lots of good producers that don't retain ownership, I'll just tell you that. The second part I would actually say is I think we constantly have to be thinking about the product we're producing and not just till the day it leaves our place. So we want that product to perform for the next guy in line. And uh, if if that animal performs, and now I'm talking about feedlot performance, I'm talking about carcass merit, all of those kinds of things, that will eventually feed back into the supply chain. And it probably feeds back better today than it did for uh, for many, many years. We've got we we got more of that kind of uh, opportunity for that feedback. So so that's kind of the other thing, uh, and maybe you know I will just tell you at our ranch uh, here in South Dakota we look very closely at at all the various programs that are out there that might 
generate some additional revenue uh, from the sale of calves because uh, that's where most of our revenue comes from. And if we can change that even 5 or 10%, it's a really big deal. One other thing I might mention is that while short-term we're sitting up here in this drought in South Dakota and much of the Northern Plains is facing a serious kind of situation here and there's uh, you know, some cattle moving, but a lot about to move if this thing doesn't actually get better. Uh, but what I would also say is the if you look longer term, we're taking cow numbers down, and I think two, three, four years out, we've got some pretty good markets coming. Uh, it just doesn't look that positive right now. But I think if you look at reducing cow numbers, which we've been on the path of reducing cow numbers, increasing percentage of our heifers being fed and gone to slaughter, uh, I, I think there's some real reason for some optimism here on uh, looking down the road a ways. And obviously, uh, uh, about three inches of rain would change a lot of attitudes pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Dr. Odie, before I let you go, we talked a lot of numbers today. And so is there a way that folks can get their hands on some of this information and have the opportunity to look at it, the results of this Tri-County Carcass Futurity? Sure. So the first thing I would say is we have the one paper is published in our Cattlemen's Day report. So that's actually out there. This next one is not, but will be at some point in time. So if you go to the Kansas State Cattlemen's Day website, uh, if you just Google K-State Cattlemen's Day, you can pick up those uh, those publications. And that would be the best place to get that information. Well, Dr. Odie, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Very good. My pleasure. Dr. Ken Odie from Kansas State University has been my guest here today as we've been reviewing the carcass trait trends with a study that they put together from the results coming out of the Tri-County Carcass Futurity. And like I'd mentioned, you know, we covered a lot of information, but if you'd like to see, uh, Dr. Odian mentioned, if you'd want to see some of that information, if you type in your web browser, K-State Cattlemen's Day, again, K-State Cattlemen's Day, you'll see some of the information that they've already put out there, and there will be more coming as well. So be watching for that. Also, to send you directly to the cooperative's website, uh, their their website is www.tcscf.com. And all of those numbers are an acronym that stands for Tri-County Steer Carcass Futurity Cooperative. That is their website with some information on there as well. Now, if you missed something from earlier in the show, as I said before, you can find it through your favorite podcast provider, our podcast here, Working Ranch Radio Show. You can go back, listen to any show that's out there as well as this one. By the way, this is episode 29 in our podcast directory well coming up next meteorologist don day joins us and we've seen some very active weather across the country but what does the month of july have for us and those dog days of august well that's next in our long-term weather forecast when we return on the working ranch radio show on rural radio channel 147 sirius xm Payday starts with superior Beefmaster cows. Yes, the Beefmaster female has stayed true to her original purpose, to help ranchers in tough environments improve performance, survivability, and longevity. So if you're giving up ground in traits that matter, consider Beefmasters. The breed will jumpstart your cattle and give your next calf crop a performance boost. Nothing beats a Beefmaster. Learn more about what the Beefmaster cow can do for your herd at Beefmasters.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. We are joined now by meteorologist Don Day. And uh, welcome back to the lower 48. I know you took a quick jaunt up into the north country of Alaska and uh, experienced a little bit different type of more moderate weather weather than what we had down here. Yeah, it was uh, certainly refreshing um, to be in some cooler air, that's for sure. For those of us that live in the western United States, getting away from the heat was certainly welcome. You bet. You know, it has been interesting because it's almost like the weather for the past 10 days or so has kind of flipped and the, and the Pacific Northwest has just been hot while down in the south, maybe into Texas and those areas, a little bit cooler weather. 
Yeah. And, you know, that may seem opposite to some, um, although we're really not surprised uh, in terms of uh, the pattern in the Pacific that we talk so much about. When those sea surface temperatures go below average in that subtropical Pacific, we call that La Nina. Even though La Nina is kind of hiding right now, it really has had a continued impact in the western United States. La Nina is a hot, dry signal, especially during the summer season. And the pattern in La Ninas historically does tend to bring cooler, wet weather to the south central and southeastern United States. So that was expected. Also expected was the warmer and drier than normal conditions in the western United States. Now, the heat wave that just scorched the Pacific Northwest is is easing some. Uh, We're not expecting the severity of the heat like what we just experienced there to return. But we're starting to see certainly a summertime pattern establishing itself, Justin, where there is, I call this the arch of heat and dryness, which starts in the desert southwest, extends along the west coast into the Pacific Northwest and southern and western Canada, and then goes all the way across the southern provinces of Canada and up into uh, portions of Maine, northern New England, while the Corn Belt, the south central United States, and the Gulf Coast, relative to normals, will be cooler and wetter than average. But that arch of heat and dryness is something I'm afraid to say. Mm. We're going to continue through the rest of July, probably into at least the beginnings of August. Now, it hasn't been all bad news. While there's been headlines of the extreme heat in the Pacific Northwest for good reason. During that same time frame, we actually saw some decent rain come into portions of Colorado, portions of Wyoming, portions of Utah. There was flash flooding in Zion National Park, Arizona, and New Mexico. That summertime North American monsoon we've talked about at times Mm -hmm. did move into those areas. But I'm I'm afraid to say that the pattern for the summer seems to be getting set. Mm Mm-hmm. So when we look at uh, uh, at July and into August, and we've talked about you've you've talked about the monsoon weather, the monsoon moisture coming in. It's a little bit more active than it was last year, but it comes more in waves. So it's not something that we're going to see and stay. It just kind of comes and goes, and with with what we're seeing. That's exactly right. It, it does not come in continuously. It comes in fits and surges, and unfortunately. The, mon- the North American monsoon pattern is is a phenomenon for the desert southwest, parts of the central Rockies and the central plains, as well as the western corn belt. I mean, the markets moved significantly recently due to the fact that the increased prospects for rain in parts of the corn belt in the next week or two is partly due to that North American monsoon pattern. But it does not get into Washington, Oregon. Uh, Some rain will fall in Southern California in this pattern, as well as Southern Nevada. But it's really hard to get this type of monsoonal moisture into Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, or British Columbia, or Alberta. So while I don't see the heat as severe in the Pacific Northwest, it is still going to be warmer than average, and it's going to continue to be drier than average, probably through all of July. Hopefully, we'll start to see things change in August, but if we do see those changes, Justin, in August, they usually happen after the middle of the month, Mm -hmm. when we have those longer nights, those shorter days, and we start to see more in the way of cold fronts come out of the Gulf of Alaska. So I'm afraid to say that that north central and far west and southwest areas of the United States are going to suffer the most, as well as parts of the northern Rockies and the northern plains. Mm -hmm. The southeast uh, this year has seen uh, quite a bit of moisture, and we're just kind of on the brink of getting into hurricane season. In fact, we already have had a few named ones coming through. How is that season looking for the Gulf Coast and southeastern part of the country? Well, historically, again, going back to historical precedent, La Nina patterns do tend to increase the frequency of tropical storms and hurricanes in the Gulf and the southeast Atlantic states. Now, we are really at the beginnings of the season. And this last tropical storm really didn't have a chance to become a a major hurricane because it went over Cuba. It went over some land masses in the Dominican Republic. It was kind of broken up a little bit. We're still expecting that as we go through the hurricane season, especially when it peaks 
as we get into August, September, early October. Those are the time frames where we're still thinking there will be an uptick in hurricane activity. So while the, the South Central and Southeastern United States is not suffering drought, uh, not suffering through any significant heat wave, they are going to have to contend with tropical weather most likely later this summer and early this fall. As we look into the fall, um, is there anything you are watching or looking at that's giving you any indication of what the fall and winter is going to look like? You know, we, we, we do have computer models that do tend to look that far. In fact, we have computer models that already can go into April of 2022. Now, I can tell you what they say, but mm-hmm. you have to promise me you won't <laughs> hold me to it yeah. because these are computer models. Sure. And and one little change out in the Pacific can up in them. And, and I have seen uh, a long-range forecast do a 180. You know, the, act, the exact opposite mm-hmm. happens. Now, with that said... What we do see for a large part of the lower 48 states for fall and early winter 2022 are warmer than average temperatures across the west, the southwest, and the central areas of the United States. But I'll tell you this, if we end up with a La Nina again, which is on the table, Mm -hmm. it's possible that high variability that we saw in the winter of 2021 could happen to where you have extended periods of above average temperatures and all of a sudden you have big arctic outbreaks like what we had in mm-hmm. texas uh and parts of the central united states in february so when you when you look at these long-range models what they try to do is give you a general idea of what the trend is going to be but they can't see individual events mm-hmm. so we could have a long-range forecast that november through april is above normal but two or three months in there could be below normal, but the warmer months overtake those colder months in terms of averaging things out. Usually, as we get into August, we start to have some better ideas of what that winter season is going to be like. And Mm -hmm. we'll be on top of it and ready to answer those questions as we get there. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks for joining us again here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks for having me. Don Day with a look at our long-term weather forecast across the country. And uh, by the way, if you enjoy his weather insight and would like to take a look uh, at what he does on a daily basis with his weather video podcast, you can go to his website at dayweather.com as it kicks out every morning, Monday through Friday. Well, before we go here today, a thank you to my guest on the Working Ranch Radio Show today, Dr. Ken Odie, also the Captain Tim O'Byrne with his two cents. So thank you to our sponsors as well the american simmental association sim genetics profit through science find out more at simmental.org gelvi balancer the smart reliable and profitable choice for more information go to gelvi.org performance beef easy to use cattle management software find performance beef online to request a demo Beefmaster, nothing beats a beefmaster find out more at beefmasters.org and by the way at beefmasters.org. And our final sponsor is the Working Ranch Expo. And as you heard today in the captain's two cents, calling for speakers. If there's somebody you'd enjoy to listen to or hear, see in person, a little more in depth on a subject, feel free to uh, email the captain or myself as well. If there's somebody you've heard here on the show and you'd like to see them in person, uh, just let us know. We'll see what we can do to get things lined up. You can get a hold of me by calling or texting the studio at 307 307- 363 cows or shoot me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com well the working ranch radio show is a production of working ranch magazine join us each saturday right here at 12 noon eastern on rural radio channel 147 sirius xm or on your favorite podcast provider thanks again for joining me i'm your host justin mills and until next time keep your chin down and your mind in the middle so long <music>